Good morning, everyone. Welcome to worship. Before we get started, let me go through a few announcements, and you can find some of these on the back of your bulletin. The first announcement is not on your bulletin, but we wanted it to be. Uh, there is a bridal shower. Um, there's a bridal shower honoring Evelyn Phillips on Sunday, March 5th at 2 p.m. at the home of Lisa Forster, and all of the ladies of the church are invited to attend that. So that is March 5th at 2 p.m. at Lisa Forster's. Um, secondly, the youth are meeting tonight at 7.15 or right after the evening worship service at the Hills home, so we invite you all to that. And there's information about uh, circle meetings that are happening this week. And uh, lastly, we are glad to have um, Pastor Heath with us this morning to give us the morning message. I'll introduce him uh, right before he gives us our message, but we're glad to have him and his family here uh, to worship with us. Those are our announcements this morning. Uh, God calls us to worship. He equips us to worship, and he gives us all the ability and energy to do that. So take a few moments to uh, ask God to give you the strength, to give you the ability to listen and to receive his word as we worship him this morning. Let's do that now.
Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 98. Would you please stand for God's call to worship Him? Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's worship the Lord with hymn number 100, which is holy, holy, holy. Let's worship again with hymn number 100.
God, we're here this morning to worship you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you be in this place? Would you be with us as we sing your praises, as we read and hear your word, as we hear your word preached? Lord, you are worthy of all our worship and more. And so we come before you humbly, worshiping you, asking that you would pour your spirits into our heart, that you would work in us, As we hear the gospel again, Lord, we need you, and we are so grateful that you have brought us here to worship you. Would you lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll confess our faith together. And we are using the Apostles' Creed to do this. And it, in the Apostles' Creed, we find many truths that the church around the world would find agreement and unity in. And it's a wonderful summary of what we believe God teaches us in His Word about us and about him and about our world. Would you read with me, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Each week we take a part of the Apostles' Creed, or I do, and we reflect on it before we go into a time of prayer. And as we go through this confession, we see how Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, we see, entered this world as miraculously as he left it. And we see how Jesus was born without sin which means that his motives and his desires were sinless and faultless. He would never say one thing and mean another. He never had ulterior motives, and he was never working the angles with anyone. He was full of truth and grace and sinless. And he was tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And so when he says in his word that he loves you, that he loves sinners, he really means that. When he says that he will lay down his life for sinners, he means it with no strings attached. And when he invites you to come to him, when he invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, and he says and promises, I will give you rest, he means it. And so we'll go to... 
our Lord and Savior this morning in prayer. We have an opportunity as individuals to go to God in silent prayer, to go to Him who wants us to be in communication with Him, who wants us to be in conversation with Him, who wants to hear from us genuinely and purely. So we'll take a few moments to pray individually and silently, and then I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's go to our Savior now in prayer. Dear God, you are high and lifted up. Your glory and splendor fills heaven. And you came to earth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, because you desired to bring sinners into your glory and splendor. And Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. and We show you our thanks and our trust in you alone by our singing, our prayer, our obedience to your word, our faith. Lord Jesus, you came into a world broken by sin over 2,000 years ago, and our world continues to cry out for a Savior to make all things new. God, as we read and saw the news this past week of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, we, many of us, are asking and have asked why you could allow or would allow such a horrible earthquake that's claiming over 28,000 lives. This is a waking nightmare for these countries, and we have no words to comprehend the sorrow and the sadness that rises up to you today. So we pray that you would have mercy, Lord, on the families who have lost their loved ones, and that you would have mercy, Lord, and make a, a surge of humanitarian aid available to those who need it, to those who are part of the rescue efforts, to the families and individuals that are needing health uh, care. Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust you in the face of such incredible suffering. We don't know why you've allowed this, and we won't know until we see you face to face. But we know this, that you are good and that you are making all sad things untrue, and that you will one day restore this broken world to beauty, and that when all is said and done, we'll stand with you and marvel at the work of your hands. Lord, we thank you for this church, for bringing many of our families this past week through the fiery trial of a stomach bug. Um, it's a short duration, we know, but Time seems to go on forever for those who are suffering from this. And so we thank you for bringing recovery and healing to those who are sick. We pray for those who remain sick today, this week, that you would renew their bodies, heal them, uh, renew them body and soul. Dear God, we thank you for bringing Pastor Heath and his family here this morning. Would you anoint his words with the power of your spirit? you make us see your goodness, your love, your power again this morning through him? And would you protect them as they travel home after the service? 
Finally, God, we thank you for our deacons and for our elders, and we ask that you bless their ministry and service to this church as they meet. Uh, and tomorrow, as the session meets, would you equip them with what they don't have? Would you give them supernatural trust in you for all things? We love you, Lord. We bless your name this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you pray with me? Lord, we have this opportunity every Sunday to give our tithes and offerings to your kingdom work, and we dedicate all that we give to you, and we ask that you would make use of it in, in ways that we couldn't imagine, and in so many more ways than we could expect. God, we thank you for an opportunity to give, and would you be honored by our giving, and would you use it again for the work that you're doing in this church, in Louisville, and around the world. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue singing and worshiping together, and we'll sing hymn number 32, which is Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's sing hymn 32 together.
You may be seated. During this season of our church life, we get to hear from different voices, uh, different preachers on our Sunday morning services and our evening services. And this morning, we're grateful to have Pastor Heath Cross here this morning, and I'll introduce him now. Many of you know Wayne Herring, and Wayne Herring connected us with Heath, their friends, and so we're glad to be able to have uh, another pastor uh, share the word with us this morning. Um, Heath has served as an assistant pastor at Stevens Valley Church in Nashville since 2019, and before that he was the pastor of Edwards Presbyterian Church in Edwards, Mississippi. He is a graduate of Mississippi State, of RTS in Jackson, and Heath and his wife Amber are originally from Arkansas, and we're glad to have them and their two daughters, Eden and Canaan, here with us this morning. So uh, thank you, Heath, and I'll have you come up. Well, I'd invite you to turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I am going to read verses 14 through 19. Short text, powerful text. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." This ends the reading of God's Word. I've decided to preach on this passage for you all today because it's... You don't want to name a favorite passage of Scripture because it's like trying to name your favorite child like if you're a preacher. Uh, but just to give you an idea how much this passage has meant to me over the years, at my church in Nashville, we, had, we went through a first phase of our building program. We're, we're a new, relatively new church, six years old. And uh, at, as we were building the first phase of our building, under, in our fellowship hall, we have a pulpit and a lectern, and they asked the pastors to write down whatever passage of Scripture was their favorite or that they were praying for our congregation on the foundation underneath the pulpit. And this is the passage that I wrote down. Because it has meant so much to me over the years, and I don't have time to convey why in full detail this morning, but I'm going to try to convey some of it as much as I can. One of the reasons the passage is so fascinating is because Paul is praying for believers. He calls them the saints at Ephesus in chapter 1. He says that you know, they were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He says that in chapter 2 that they were saved by grace through faith. Yet he's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts. You should immediately ask a question. 
why is Paul praying for believers that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? Isn't Christ already in their hearts? Uh, I, have, I know, like for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, there's that great passage to the church of Laodicea where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and sup with him. That's often used evangelistically. It's, you know, Christ is calling out to sinners saying, just open the door of your heart and I'll come in. But that was actually written to a church, to people who are already believers. Christ is saying, open the door and I'll come in. Why? Why is Paul praying? Why to the church of Laodicea is Jesus saying, open up your hearts to me and let me come in? That's the question. We're going to try to answer it now. So we're going to talk about three points. The problem of Christ in the heart, the solution of Christ in the heart, and the result of Christ in the heart. Number one, the problem. So I didn't read it, but if you want to see the problem the Ephesians are going through, you have to go back up to verse 13. Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. They're in a situation where they're tempted to lose heart, Paul says. The Greek word has the idea of being overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't lose heart over the evil that you're facing in this world. Don't be overcome by your bad circumstances. That's another way of putting it. It's a temptation that Christians always face, just being overcome by bad circumstances, right? I, I, I listened, I, I worked at a drugstore years ago in a different life, and I would have to make deliveries to nursing homes, and it would take two, two and a half hours, and I would listen to talk radio while I was driving. And one day I, I remember walking in and realizing, like, I felt like I just had this giant black cloud hanging over my head. And, I'm asking, and I thought, oh, it's because I've been listening to stuff about politics for the last two hours, there's so many bad circumstances to be had in the world. I mean, it just feels like you can be overwhelmed by all the bad that you're surrounded by. In fact, uh, I, re I recently read a book by a social psychologist named Roy Baumeister, and the book was called The Power of Bad. And he's, he's talking about how in this new media age that we're facing. Uh, you know, we're in a technological revolution that most people don't realize we're in right now. Our kids especially don't realize we're in it because it's all that they know now. But he talks about the fact we're just constantly surrounded by bad. And he says, as a psychologist, what research has shown that in order for you to have a good day, you need four good events to happen for every one bad event. And in order for you to have a good year, you need four times as many good events to happen as bad events. And so if, you've, if, if you come home and your spouse asks you, how was your day? It's, it's probably going to come down to that ratio of good to bad. And, uh, but now in the world of the Internet, not are, are we only exposed to the bad events that we have to experience personally in our jobs and our lives and the like, but we're experienced to a million bad events that could have happened in any part of the world that if we lived 100 years ago, it would have taken us weeks to find out about if we ever find out about them at all. You know, Chinese spy balloons over Montana. What's going on with that? Earthquakes in various parts of the world, etc. So... You know, one of my favorite Jordan Peterson quotes of all time, uh, he said, there are so many problems in the world, you can just die of problems if you pay attention to them, if you, if you keep paying attention to them. Uh, Baumeister says that we're in the middle of what he calls a crisis crisis. There are so many crises that, li that life itself is just a crisis. So you can lose heart. 
You can just be overwhelmed. Every, every new political season, we're just overwhelmed. We're just inundated. And this really takes us where Paul is trying to take us into the subject of assurance. What Paul wants for these believers and what he wants for us and what God wants for us is that we would have assurance in the midst of bad circumstances so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed. And, you know, in my counseling over the years uh, with believers, I found that on the subject of assurance, people don't usually struggle with whether they're saved or not. I have met people that do. What they really struggle with is the question, like, is God in control? And does God care? And is God involved in my life? I see this bad thing, that bad thing, that bad thing, these crises. Does God really care? Is he really involved? Um, Sometimes we're fortunate enough with hindsight that we can look back on our life and say, yes, I can kind of see what God was doing there. But in the midst of it, it never feels like that. It feels like we never know what God is doing. In the moment we're going through the trial, that's when it's hard. And see, now let me take you back to the Ephesians and show you exactly what they're going through that's tempting them to lose heart. What's the crisis they're facing? Paul is preaching and teaching and writing about all these glorious truths of the gospel while he's sitting in a jail cell. He wrote this letter from prison. And I don't know how to communicate like the effect that that would have had on believers other than to say, so I know Billy Graham has passed on now, but imagine if you woke up this morning to the headline on your phone that famous evangelist Billy Graham was in a prison cell in some other country and possibly and probably awaiting the death penalty. That's what these folks are going through. Paul is in prison. His life is on the line. He's ultimately, uh, years later now, but he's going to be put to death. And Paul's worried. Yes, I'm teaching all these glorious truths, but you're going to be tempted to lose heart because it doesn't seem like this good news of the gospel has been great news for me because I'm sitting in a jail cell. If God is so good, if he really cares, they're probably asking, well, why is Paul in jail? It reminds me of John the Baptist. I know y'all have looked at the story of John the Baptist recently. You know, he ended up in a jail cell in his life as well, in really bad circumstances, and was being tempted to be overwhelmed by the evil of those circumstances. In Luke 4, Jesus, when Jesus proclaims himself to be the Messiah, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim liberty to the captives. That's the key phrase. Jesus says, this passage is fulfilled in me. Fast forward a few chapters to Luke 7. John the Baptist is sitting in a jail cell, and he sends some of his disciples to talk to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this whole Messiah thing, you remember the thing about setting the captives free? Well, here I am. Are you the guy, or should we look for somebody else? And this is the man who had said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's doubting. He's lacking assurance because of the circumstances that he's facing. And Jesus responds, this is Luke 7, 22, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach to them. Jesus quotes that in Luke 4 from Isaiah 61. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He left out something there. You know what he left out? Proclaiming of liberty to the captives. He left that out. He's essentially saying to John, John, I am Isaiah 61. I am the Messiah. 
I, the good news have poor preached to them, the lame will walk, the blind will see, but you're not going to get out of prison this time. Don't be offended by me. The fact that your circumstances are terrible is no reflection of the way that I feel about you. That leads to point two. The solution of Christ in the heart. When we're facing these circumstances and we're tempted to be overwhelmed by them and doubt God's care for us, doubt Christ's work in our life and the like, Paul says what we need is Christ in the heart. He uses a Greek compound word that literally means something like to house down. Uh, to homestead, that would be one way of putting it, to settle down, to colonize, to occupy, to make himself at home. The idea is, when you're tempted to feel overwhelmed by the circumstances, the real problem is that Christ hasn't fully occupied your heart. He hasn't taken, taken over completely. It's like, like Israel in the book of Judges. After, after Joshua goes in and takes the promised land, by the time we get to Judges, we realize he hasn't taken the whole promised land because these Philistines and all these different tribes keep popping up, right, and causing problems for the people of God. Paul's saying, you've given Jesus your heart, but perhaps you haven't allowed him to occupy your whole heart. He hasn't fully occupied it. He hasn't taken over. Uh, maybe you haven't invited him. There's, there's places in your heart that you haven't invited him into yet. That might be one way of putting it. Um, one of the things I found over the years just growing as a Christian is you have to invite Jesus into your regrets and into your pains and into your guilt and your shame. And, and you know, some, some things can be so private that you don't want to invite anybody in, much less Jesus, because, uh, I mean, hey, he's perfect. He's going to judge me, right? You don't want to invite him in. Paul's saying, invite him in. Invite him in. There's an old hymn that says, Come near to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. Um, there's another one that says, Make my life a bright outshining of thy life, that all may see thine own resurrection power mightily put forth in me. Ever let my heart become, I like this phrase, yet more consciously thy home. That's a perfect summary of Paul. He wants our hearts more consciously to become the home of Christ. And you know, you know what it's like to prepare a house for guests when you've got company coming over and you want to get everything in order because you don't want them to judge you, right? Well, Jesus is not going to judge you. But at the same time, Paul says... Prepare your hearts to consciously become his home. Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage, he says, you know, we focus so much in the church on what Christ has done for us on the cross, but we, it's, we little think about what Christ is doing in us, actually dwelling within us. And Paul says this takes strength. He says he prays that God would strengthen us so that we would be able to do this, so that we would invite Christ in, that he would dwell in our hearts through faith. It takes strength to be able to warts and all say, Jesus, come in, take over, occupy my inner life, occupy my heart. But that's what Paul's summoning us to and praying for, that we would have strength to say, despite the circumstances, despite my flaws, despite my sin, despite my guilt, I want Christ to occupy my heart. Um, to learn that his love is not dependent on my circumstances and to want to have a relationship with him uh, that dominates every aspect of my life, that goes down to the core and center of my being. Open up your hearts. 
Let him come in. That's what's going to combat the circumstances that you face when you're tempted to be overcome by evil. That leads to point three. So when you do this, when you say, make my heart more consciously thy home so that I will not get overwhelmed by evil, what's the result? And this is my favorite part of the passage. The more settled Christ becomes in your heart, verse 17, you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The more that Christ dwells in your heart, the more your heart becomes his dwelling place, what you're going to experience is how much he loves you. Now, we had Jesus loves me playing. That is the most, most profound truth in the planet that Jesus could love sinners like us. You know, there's a, f- a pretty famous story about the theologian Karl Barth. Uh, he was a very learned man, and uh, he was at a public speaking engagement with a large group Q&A afterward, and someone asked him, Dr. Bart, what is the most profound thing that you've learned in all of your studies? And he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When Christ begins to occupy your heart, he begins to occupy your heart with his love. D.A. Carson says, commenting on our passage, Paul assumes that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. We may think we are peculiarly mature Christians because of our theology, our education, our years of experience, our traditions, our behavior, but Paul knows better. He knows we cannot be as mature as we ought to be until we know this love that surpasses knowledge. A mature Christian thinks more about the love of Christ than anything else, wants to experience the love of Christ more than anything else. When I was a young man, I thought holiness was just crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's behaviorally. Uh, I thought it, you know, really being like a Pharisee, just having this air of holiness about you that you don't sin. Paul's conception of holiness is you're always going to sin. Perhaps your behavior will get better, but the most important thing is, do you know the love of Christ? The maturest, and and I, I can testify to this, I can testify to this, the most mature believers I've ever met know more about the love of Jesus than anybody I've ever met. The preachers that I love know more about the love of Jesus than, than normal folks sitting in normal pews all over the, the world today. Why does it matter to know the love of Jesus? Because we need to be loved. That's our number one need. And you know this to be true. Just take a baby and just let it squander away by itself without being loved. What's going to happen to it? It's never going to be well adjusted. That child is going to be full of anger and rage. And it's, its life is going to turn out to be a disaster. And see, that's our lives if we don't know the love of Christ. You want to know what hell is? The best definition of hell is probably the place where the love of Christ is absent. And if we don't know his love now, that's our trajectory. And Paul doesn't want that for us. But the thing is, talking about being overwhelmed by circumstances, we all get what we feel our little tastes of hell in this earth. You know, know, we feel the weight of all of the crises that are going on in the world and that we're facing in our own lives. Um, I preached years ago on Psalm 22 and had something hit me that I thought was fairly profound and it affected my life. 
You know, Psalm 22 starts out with very famous words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said those words? It's okay, go ahead. I hear Jesus. You know who actually said them in Psalm 22? David. There was a time in King David's life when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know what circumstances he was going through when he wrote it. We know, we know some of the circumstances he went through in his life. We know that he was responsible for the death of one of his best soldiers. We know that um, he lost a, a baby. We know that he had a son betray him, Absalom, and uh, try to usurp the throne from him. But clearly there was a point in David's life when he looked up at God and said, God, I'm overwhelmed by the, the evil. You've forsaken me. It's not strange for believers to feel like that. But when, if David could have been there at the foot of the cross when Jesus quoted those words, my, when he looked up and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think what David would have realized and what he knows now in glory is, oh, I felt forsaken. I thought I was forsaken. But there's the proof. I wasn't. He was coming to be forsaken for me. And, and, and now he knows I can never be forsaken. And we need to hear that over and over again. I may feel forsaken, but Jesus said this so I can know I never will be forsaken. You know, back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist in a prison cell saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, are you even the Messiah? Are you the guy? Do I need to start looking for something else? Because I'm languishing. I'm going to die here. Jesus uh, turns away from the messengers of John after he says, go and tell him. He's not going to get out of prison, but I'm the Messiah. He turns to the disciples, to those who were following him in the crowd, and he says, John the Baptist is the greatest guy who ever lived. There's not one born among men and women who's greater than John the Baptist. John is thinking, this guy doesn't care about me. He's just letting me languish. Jesus is saying, this is the greatest guy who ever lived. And he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. I heard Ligon Duncan preach a sermon on that passage years ago. And he said that, that was a, what Jesus gave us there was a picture of the final judgment day. That Jesus is going to heap such shocking praise on us as believers. John the Baptist, greatest man who ever lived, but everybody in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. That's how Jesus looks at us. He's going to heap such lavish praise on us that it's going to embarrass us down to our socks. And I love that. Because I know when I picture, if Jesus walked into this room right now physically, uh, and I had to stand before him, I'm thinking, my head's bowed. I'm recoiling in on myself. Oh boy, here comes the hammer. He's going to drop it. It's that Johnny Cash song. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. But what the Bible's telling me is what Jesus is going to do is lift my chin up. Psalm 3 says God is the lifter of our heads. And he's going to say, I love you. You're wonderful. You're my masterpiece. Look at all I've done in your life. Can you believe it? You know, like Peter. Peter, the betrayer of Jesus. Jesus doesn't restore him with, you know, if I, if I did what Peter did, like if I got up here and denied Christ today, I'd be on a presbytery trial, right? I'd be getting defrocked. Jesus just says, hey, Peter, you love me? You know I love you. It's like, you know I love you, right? You love me, right? Peter says, yes, all right. Go feed the sheep. That's all it is. And so I love to talk about the, the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. I don't understand why he loves me. I don't. And I haven't grasped the height and depth and length and breadth of it, but 
I want to. And I wanted to share some of that with you today because you know, I, was, I love to talk about the love of Christ. And I had an elder at my church come to me a while back. I was talking, talking about how much Christ loves us. And he came up to me after the sermon and he said, I think you finally convinced me today that Jesus likes me. And I said, that's good. That's a good start. He does. Now let's, let's move from like to love. Let's try to figure that part out today. Is there room in your heart for the love of Christ? Has he occupied your heart to the point that despite the circumstances, the prison cell for Paul, for John the Baptist, uh, the 24-7 news cycle that we all have access to on our phones, in spite of all that, has Christ occupied your heart to the point that the love of Jesus is realer to you than what you see on the news. Realer to you than the Super Bowl. Realer to you than the headlines. Realer, realer to you than whatever you, know, you have to go out into this world and face this week is the love of Christ realer to you than that. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she wrote a famous poem, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. Where do you think that came from? It's Ephesians 3. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. Jesus is saying that to you. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. And his soul can reach higher than we can even fathom. In Romans 5, Paul says, the love of God can be shed abroad or poured into our hearts. Is there room in your heart for the love of God to come pouring in? That's what Paul prayed for for the Ephesians. And I always like to give folks something they can do after sermon. Here's what I'm going to tell you you can do. You pray for that for yourself. You pray what he prayed. You pray it for you. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us on this Lord's Day. Uh, thank you for the love of Christ. Uh, none of us have experienced it fully. We look forward to a day in glory when we will be fully known, that we will fully know even as we are fully known. But even now, would you shed abroad the love of Christ in our hearts? Would you help us to remember in spite of our circumstances that you prove your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Would you give us hearts that desire to experience the love of Christ more than we desire anything that this world can afford? And would you help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face as the things of earth, that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Bind our wondering hearts to thee, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand now together and sing hymn number 457. 457.
Now may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength together with all the saints to comprehend what is the height and depth and length and breadth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Amen.